we continue this evening uh, um, in our story series, and we're at week 16. Can you believe that? There's only 20 weeks in the Old Testament, so we're making some major progress. But if uh, you've been doing the reading, the last couple of weeks have been a whirlwind, and uh, the chapters are spread out over the over the uh, course of several books, and <clears throat> the stories have just become super fascinating as we watch the rescue team go from uh, focused to scattered and rebellious. And so the, tonight we're looking at really the fall of Israel and you know the beginning of the end. And uh, before we pray, I'll just give you a little heads up that we're going to look at uh, an excerpt from chapter 17. And the first verse, chapter 6, gives us the what, what happened. And then the rest of our verses tell us why that happened. But before we go any further, let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even though some of these events, this event in particular, took place almost 3,000 years ago. Lord, we thank you that your word is so relevant. So I pray as we look at the rebellion, the disobedience, the fall of the Israelites back in that day, Lord, I pray as we look at that, you would allow us to see how we're not too far different. Lord, expose our rebellion, expose our disobedience. Lord, extend again a word of your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness so that we could draw closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings, chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 6 through 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala in Gozan on the Habor River and in the town of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers, and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, and themselves became worthless. Some interesting turns of phrases here. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, and they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. 
They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bow down to the starry hosts. They worship Baal. They sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. They practice divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even, oh, I'm going too far. Sorry, I'm getting all into it. We're supposed to stop at 17. <clears throat> this is God's word. Well before the dawn of the technology era, before video games and the internet, there was a simple form of entertainment that kids everywhere engaged in. See if you can guess what it is. It was a game that was full of tension and struggle, and it almost always ended in someone getting hurt. It was a physical game of strategy where a combination of momentum and wit could put you on top. Can anyone guess what game I'm talking about? What was that? I said dodgeball. <laughs> Good. A little bit more elevated. King of the Hill. King of the Hill. Or uh, where, I'm, where I grew up in, we called the King of the Mountain. But King of the Hill is probably more uh, accurate because it was never a mountain. But King of the Hill or King of the Mountain, um, it wouldn't matter if it was a small hill or maybe a mound of snow or sometimes a truckload of soil that was uh, in a yard. Maybe it was a pile of rocks or a pile of mulch. But, it, you know, it didn't really matter the medium. The fact was there was an elevated place. And one of your friends would climb up to the, elef the elevated uh, area and declare himself king of the hill. And then you'd spend the next five minutes, usually until someone got hurt or started crying, trying to dislodge the king and make yourself king in their place. Now, partly because I had an older brother and almost all uh, cousins that were boys, it seemed like we were playing King of the Hill fairly regularly. <coughs> and as I thought about this game, I thought about life, and interestingly enough, we quickly outgrow that childhood version of King of the Hill, but we continue to play a different, more subtle version, a private adult version of the game. As adults, we would never admit that we were playing the game. In fact, many of us might be playing it without even realizing it. What does the adult game look like? Well, it starts with the desire to be king or queen. I use that title loosely. What I mean is it starts with the desire to do as we please. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone telling us different. We are king of the mountain, king of the hill. We choose the way we dress. We choose what we eat. We choose what TV shows we watch and how much TV we want to watch. King of the hill says, I know smoking will give me cancer, but I'm going to do it anyway. King of the hill says, I should probably spend more time with my kids, but I'm going to watch three hours of sports anyway. King of the Hill says, I should stop and express concern to my wife or parents, but I really don't have time for that, so I won't. 
The king of the hill mentality says, nurse that grudge. Blow up in anger if you want, if it'll make you feel better. Gossip and be judgmental because you feel a bit inferior or a bit jealous. King of the hill says, go on lust a little bit. It's okay to look at the menu as long as you don't order out. King of the hill says, on one hand, oh, go and buy it. You deserve that. But on the other hand says, you don't have to give that much or spend that much on that person. It's your money. You earned it. King of the Hill is a strong but subtle default mode that most of the human race experiences. The Bible calls it sinful nature or our flesh. Some might call it human nature. But essentially, it's the desire to be king, to call our shots, to do what we want, and bow our whim to no one. We all have it. You can see it in babies and toddlers. You can see it in young kids and high schoolers. You can see it in young adults and college students, in middle-aged and senior-aged. None of us can escape the king of the hill mentality. And neither could the Israelites. In fact, the Israelites could not only escape the king of the hill mentality, they did things to fuel it. They let it rage in their behavior and decision-making. Well, what did they actually do? Well, let me set the time frame for you. Let me uh, do uh, the Old Testament in 30 seconds. See, so we started with creation, and God created everything good, and he, and he created people to... to uh, partner with him in sustaining creation and creating, co-creating alongside of him. But then we chose our own way and we rebelled. And when we said, I don't want to do it God's way, God said, have it your way. And then we had to pay the consequences. God initiated a rescue plan through the family of Abraham. That family grew and started to become a nation. And the nation got enslaved in Egypt under a dictator, a, 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 a harsh a slave master, Pharaoh. And after about 400 years of slavery, God provided a rescuer to the rescue team with Moses. That happened in about 1440, when Moses delivered, when God delivered the, the Israelites with Moses' help in, in about 1440, a new chapter in the rescue mission began. Before, God had just really given promises and glimpses of what might happen. Blessings. A promise here, a blessing there. But now, God said, you are my people. I am your God. We're in a relationship together. And then he gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us the law. And he said, all right, here's the guidelines that I want you to follow when you're in relationship with me. And everything started to go fairly well. I mean, there was some, some uh, it did sputter a little bit. There were some trust issues and uh, some, some detours. But eventually, Israel got on track and figured out that when they trust God, things go well. When they do things God's way, God blesses them. And the nation grew and grew. And under uh, 
King David, the kingdom expanded. And then, about 700 years after the Exodus, the Israelites sort of forgot about the guidelines. And the king of the mountain mentality reared in their leaders and in, their, in, in the people. And it got to the point where God says, enough. If you'll have nothing to do with me, I'll have nothing to do with you. And the Assyrians come and they take them away. They capture the northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north, and take them to various parts in the Assyrian Empire. So what was so heinous? Let's take a, a brief look at that, and then we can apply it to our, our lives. I just want to do a quick run-through. And starting with verses 7 and 8, the Bible says that, first off, they worship other gods. They're breaking commandments 1 and 2. They follow the practices of everybody around them. And then it says they even invented some of their own bad practices. Verses 9 through 12 lay out another list of, of their sins. It says they secretly sinned. They were hypocritical. Outwardly, they claimed to be followers of God, yet secretly, they did things that were not right. They built themselves high places, which is always a cue for they worshipped cultic pagan gods. Sacred stones and Asherah poles under every spreading tree. Whenever you see that, Asherah poles and spreading trees... There's some bad stuff going on. Basically, the, uh, the cultic goddess connected with the Asherah pole was the goddess of fertility. And to sacrifice or worship that goddess, you gave money to sleep with a temple prostitute or a, a, a religious prostitute. And so it was by, by worshiping the Asherah pole under every spreading tree, it meant that Husbands, fathers were committing adultery by paying money to sleep with prostitutes uh, to worship foreign gods. That's pretty bad. They're not only breaking the first two commands, now they're breaking some other commands. The tenth command, commandment, don't commit adultery. Verses 9 through 12 continue and, and, and say, uh, They did things the nation that the nations who God rescued them from did. They specifically broke the law. Verse 13, God warned them. He sent them prophets and seers. Turn from your ways. Observe my commands. The guides I have given you and your forefathers, get back in line and you will receive my blessing. But they wouldn't listen, verse 14 says. They were stiff-necked. And then if you look at verse 15, there's an, a really interesting It says uh, phrase. In the middle of verse 15, it says, They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. I was intrigued by this. I had to figure out what this means. I looked it up in the, the Hebrew. And, and the, the word means emptiness. And so it literally means they followed emptiness and became empty themselves. 
That's a good description of some of the pursuits we have today. Following emptiness and becoming empty ourselves. Verse 16, God says, don't do as they are doing. Don't give in to the culture around you. You'll regret it. It'll only end in your demise. Stay in the, within my guidelines, the laws that I've given you. But even though he said, don't do as they're doing, they did it anyways. Verse 17 says, they worshiped handmade statues. They worshiped the stars and the moon. They sacrificed their children to fire in worship of Moloch. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to evil. They did evil in God's eyes and provoked him to anger. You can actually summarize all their sins into a few main categories. They sinned with their money. They sinned in the realm of sexuality and lust. They sinned in the area of compassion and justice. They sinned in the area of honesty and integrity. And if you break all those down, in a way they systematically broke all the Ten Commandments. All of the Ten Commandments. Why did they do it? They had it made. They had God's blessing. God was leading them. They were becoming the people of God and experiencing incredible peace and prosperity. So why did they do it? Why did they walk away from him? It's the same reason we do. Because deep within the soul of a person is an incredible desire to be king. King of our own hills. Whoa, wait a minute. Does that mean God might turn his back on us? Hold on to that question. Interestingly enough, if you fast forward about another 700, 750 years from the, uh, the capture and the, the uh, exporting of the Israelites throughout the land, if you fast forward it another 700 years to the first recorded teaching of Jesus, you'll find the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a, a restating or a reinterpretation of the Old Testament law, but in a much more comprehensive, practical way. To some extent, the Sermon on the Mount is a correction of everything wrong the Israelites were doing in, in our passage in chapter 17. So stick your finger in, well, you know what, we're pretty much finished with chapter 17. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. I wish I had the, uh, the, the number of the, uh, the Bible page, but if you can find the New Testament, just go five page chapters into the New Testament, you'll find the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And I just want to give you a, an overview of that. Just really briefly, I want to just give you a, a flyby of the categories that that covers. The Sermon on the Mount covers the same categories of sin that the Israelites were breaking in, as listed in 2 Kings 17. In, let's start with, um, we'll skip the introductory words of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll jump right into the instructions. If you start in chapter 5, verse 21, you have murder. On one hand, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. That was Ten Commandments. I say, 
Anyone who stays angry at his brother is in guilt. The next chapter, uh, next section, look at it. It's adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman. Jump down to the next one, 30, 31. Divorce. And in this one, and it helps to know a little context. Back in Jesus' day, and in many places today in the Middle East, it's very easy for a male to divorce his spouse, but almost impossible for a female to divorce her spouse. And so there was a, a really evil practice that was going on where for any reason, a younger female interest, any reason, a uh, married man would say, I divorce you, and walk away from his wife. And if that happened to you, if you were a married woman, your life just did a turn for the worse. And life would become incredibly, incredibly difficult in all areas of your life. In fact, your very life would be threatened. Jesus is condemning that practice. Don't leave your spouse helpless for your own gain or pleasure. Remember the oath you made before God. And speaking of that, that's the next section, oaths. Remember the third commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain? Here it is again. Don't leverage God for your own gain. Don't swear on God's foots. Don't swear to God. Don't swear to, to God's creation. Don't leverage God for your own gain. Let your yes be yes, simply. And then the next part in verse 38 is retaliation. Don't do it. Let God dish out justice in his own way, in his own timing. The next part, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus actually takes the Ten Commandments and applies them to our inner thought life, our motivations, our attitudes. And what Jesus does, just like the Old Testament law was, he's given us guardrails. Guardrails so we won't drive our, the car of, of life off the cliff. But he, just, he doesn't just give us don't do guardrails. He gives us some do guardrails. Some positive guardrails. He says, um, after love your enemies, he says, give to the needy. Be generous. Then the next one. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, so be in the habit of praying. And then down in verse 16. And when you fast, that means be in the habit of fasting. And then if you continue, there's warnings against materialism. There's warnings against worrying because it shows a lack of trust. There's warnings against judging. And Jesus takes the law and he explodes it. And, he, and it says, he says, the law just doesn't apply to your external world. The law applies to your internal world. Let me interpret it for you. And he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount these great guardrails for life that apply the Ten Commandments to our life. 
Now, you might be, at this point, astutely thinking, well, if I had a hard time with the external Ten Commandments, then this seems almost impossible. What Jesus is calling us to is a new way of life. And the main difference between us and the Israelites is that we're not just trying to follow God's will. We're trying to... We're not just trying to live God's way. But we are partnering with God. It's with God's participation that we can live His way and experience His blessings and benefits. It's with God participating in our life, in our faith, that we can shake off enslavement to money or anger or lust or selfishness or pride or ego. And with God's participation in our life, that we can experience peace, goodness, self-control, contentment, joy, gratitude, satisfaction in life, and other signs of wholeness and well-being. The key to this life is understanding the guardrails, getting a firm idea of what God expects a Christian life to look at. But how you turn and, and use that key to unlock Christian living is by realizing you will never be able to do it on your own. And you need God's participation, God's partnership with your life. And that's why Jesus gives the intro and conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me if you still have your Bibles open to the Sermon on the Mount. Back to chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the... These are promises, by the way. The Beatitudes are promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you can read them all, but let me just point out another one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, Jesus is saying there's a new way of life coming, and God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's participation in your life, in your faith, is here and now. And so, if you're poor in spirit, don't worry, because the kingdom of heaven is yours. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness and you're just not getting it, don't worry. You will be filled. And then Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. Verse 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Trust God. Ask him when you need help. Tell him where you're struggling and how you need help. And God will give it to you. You see, the Israelites were not in the same boat as us. We have Christ in us. Remember the question I said, hold off on? Will God ever leave us or forsake us for not being able to follow him? Well, the answer is no. Because in Christ, we don't have our own righteousness, but his. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, if anyone has intentionally taken themselves off the hill, removes themselves as king of the hill and places Christ on there, then they are a new creation. 
The Bible puts it this way, we become clothed in Christ. And I love that visual because when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness draped around us. We are in far better shape than the Israelites because we have the creator within us. If we're poor in spirit, Jesus makes up for it. If we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Jesus will satisfy us. And it's through cooperation with the Holy Spirit, with Christ in us, that we can follow God's will. And we can keep our car from smashing in and over the guardrails and burning at the bottom of the cliff. So the Israelites are a pointer to our need for Christ. And the Israelites are a reminder that the king of the hill mentality lurks in us. And if we don't yank ourselves off the hill and place Christ there, we will never be any better than the Israelites. 